Hey everyone, welcome to My Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus. And today we explore uh, why Jesus in so many ways was a bit of a square peg uh, in a round hole when it came to his time on this earth and how he calls us uh, to be the same. Hey, welcome back everyone. Uh, my name is Lucas. If you don't know me, I would love to get to know you. Let me know uh, where you're watching from in the comments. Uh, but we are a church in Powell River, BC, Canada. And so we're just so glad that you're joining us right now from wherever you're joining. But if you are in this region, in the Powell River, Sunshine Coast region, uh, we would welcome you to come uh, visit us and uh, introduce yourselves. Uh, we have a physical lo location here in Powell River. Our services are 10 a.m. every Sunday morning. And uh, we know that there are those of you watching online that are part of our church family, but because of circumstances, you can't be with us in person. So we are so glad that we can be at least together like this. And so, uh, yeah. And for those of you that we haven't seen for a while with the summer and travel and all of those things, uh, we miss you, we love you, and can't wait to see your faces again very, very soon. But if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with us to John chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. And for those of you that are joining, maybe you're new with us, we're in a series called The Gospel of John. We are going through the life of Jesus as written and uh, collected by John. And so this is just a great moment to really just begin to understand who Jesus is, what he was about, what that means for us today. And so if you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along, just visit myevangel.church forward slash Bible and we can get one to you right away. But have you ever been um, misconstrued? Have you ever been judged unfairly? Uh, judged by those perhaps they don't know the whole story, uh, maybe just pieces and bits, and, and then you walk in and you've just been unfairly judged. It's not a good feeling, is it? Uh, it's, it, it can be actually a, a wounding kind of moment. It can be a, a hard moment. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, so Lisa, she's also another pastor here at Evangel Church. She's, we're married, so we're husband and wife. And before Lisa ever met me, she had already prejudged me. In fact, uh, she didn't like me very much. And the reason was, is um, my ex-girlfriend was her housemate in college. And so before she ever met me, uh, she had heard of me. Now, to be fair, uh, some of the things that she probably heard were uh, true to that season and that snapshot of my life. But hey, friends, I had changed. Things, things you mature, you grow, you get better. And so anyway, so I came into this situation already prejudged based on uh, someone else's perspective of me. And it's funny because it kind of took a little while for her to kind of warm up to who I was and who I was becoming. And, uh, but hey, long story short, we're, we've been married just, just last July. It was 15 years. And so we're, we're just rolling. But I tell you, I tell you that story because, um, I mean, it's a feel good story in the end, but it, it doesn't feel good to be prejudged uh, based on uh, prior reputation or who you were. I know this world loves to kind of do this. They, they bring up who you were years ago and, and they judge you in light of that for today. And people change, people grow. 
but this reputation that precedes you, uh, sometimes it isn't accurate. And we're going to find out that Jesus kind of carried the same weight as he kind of ministered and served humanity around him. So why is that important? Well, it's important because Jesus can empathize with your pain. He can empathize with this feeling of being misjudged. And um, we're going to kind of dig into that and see how this all kind of goes. Now, the events of what we're about to read here, uh, they happen actually six months after the events we've previously um, kind of explored. And so last week would have been six months, the, the whole sermon on the living bread, the revelation of, of the living bread and Jesus as the living bread. This is now six months later, and we come to this moment into the life and ministry of Jesus. So let's jump into it. John chapter 7, starting verse 1, and let's take this journey together. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So so we see here that during the six months, Jesus is not static, and, but he's, he's ministering in the north in, in a region called Galilee. And why is this? Well, what you need to understand about this moment in time is, is Jerusalem and Judea, that was like the hot spot. That is where you went to become like a premier rabbi. A rabbi simply means teacher, teacher of the law and the prophets. And so it's, this was the place, like Judea and Jerusalem were like the place where you, it was either going to make or break you in terms of your influence and your followership and, and your ability to uh, bring your theological ideas and have them kind of um, bounced around with intellectuals that would be talking in, in the temple. And so all of that was kind of happening in Jerusalem. But in Jesus' case, they... His, his theological understandings were so countercultural that they actually brought too much tension within that space. And so there was a contingent of rulers, religious rulers, that wanted to literally kill him. There was a con conspiracy to murder him. Now, I, I find this moment um, really quite profound because in the, in the day today of, of like celebrity pastors and church leaders, uh, we kind of see the way of Jesus here quite contrary. And as we go through this, these verses, we're going to kind of be all over the place a little bit because we're just going to be um, unpacking verse by verse by verse. And so just bear with us. This is a little more of a teach here. But I just wanted to just say, like, instead of going to the hub, uh, Jesus was content to serve in the rural north of Israel in Galilee. Um, and, and I hope that, you know, to some degree, young leaders, if you're listening to this, uh, don't, don't necessarily pursue the hotspots. I mean, some people are called to particular places, but don't, don't pursue the hotspots. Jesus was so content to serve in the rural areas of his day. And uh, sometimes we can get so caught up in, in getting into the hotspot to make a name for ourselves. And Jesus here, he models something different. He models something quite unique in uh, his pursuits. And so he had a bigger mission in mind than his own exaltation in this moment. That was to come later, but in this moment, he had a bigger mission in mind. So let, let's, let's continue. Verse two, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed him. Now, 
The Feast of Booths is an interesting one because it's one of the more popular feasts of the Jewish calendar. And, and you would go and you'd set up like uh, structures of leaves and branches and you'd camp outside for the seven days that this festival was happening. And it was sort of a celebration of God's provision in the wilderness, but also tied in with the celebration of bringing in the harvest seasonally. And so this was kind of an exciting, upbeat, fun festival uh, that people went to. Now, what was interesting about this is it was actually mandatory. If you lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, it was mandatory that you attend this festival. If you were lived outside of the 15 mile radius, uh, then it, w it was voluntary. But I'm sure if you're anything like me, you can kind of uh, appreciate lighthearted sarcasm. I know uh, with my friendships and even in our family, like we, liked, we like sarcasm. We like to lightheartedly like um, just have, have fun with that sort of dry humor. But there is a sarcasm that cuts. There is a sarcasm that uh, it was, it's intended to wound the person that you're being sarcastic towards. And, and Jesus' brothers in this moment, they seek to, they seek to wound Jesus. They, they, they encourage him to take his ministry of signs and wonders to the hub, to the hot spot of religious practice. Um, they tell him, you know, bring, bring your show to the big show, essentially. But we see in verse 5 the, the kind of motivations for why they're saying this to them. He, they're saying this because they did not believe in him. So these are Jesus' own brothers. This is his family. These are his younger brothers. Um, Mary and Joseph went on to have other children besides Jesus. And so these brothers, they do not believe in Jesus. And, and perhaps, you know, they felt that Jesus needed to be brought down a, a rung or two. You know how sibling rivalries can go. Um, and maybe they thought, you know, if we get Jesus going to Jerusalem and knowing kind of the, the tension that he had created, that maybe he would have been brought down or, or, or rung or two. Um, and so they just, they did not believe in Jesus. And so they're kind of using sarcasm here to kind of push Jesus buttons, or at least trying to. And, and here's Jesus' response. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, there's, there's two things that we need to kind of notice about this moment. First, he says, my time has not yet come. And there's kind of twofold purpose to what he's saying here. The, the word in the Greek actually speaks to... Um, it lends itself to the idea that he's saying, like, my time to go to this particular festival has not yet come. And so there's this kind of idea that perhaps he's not going to go with his brothers, but he's looking at just the timing of when he's going. But then there's like a secondary, and we see this over and over and over again in the life of Jesus, is he, he says this many times, like, my time has not yet come. And what he's referring to is this path to the cross, this, this path towards... Um, kicking off what his mission is really about, to actually come, die, uh, and, and raise again for humanity. And so that's his ultimate goal. That's his ultimate mission. But he's saying, my time has not yet come for that. And so he's not going to go. He's not going to go publicly, incite the rulers, and um, kickstart that process. Because they already have a conspiracy to kill him. But his time has not yet come. But there's something else that he reveals here. Uh, Jesus, 
he kind of invites us into this contrasting of two worlds, the natural world and the kingdom of God. And of course, he represents and he's living for the kingdom of God. And so what he, he essentially says to his brothers, they're not going to hate you because you are of the world. Um, in other words, you uphold the status quo in terms of what the world expects of you. Your way of living does not rock the boat or bring discomfort. Now, contrast that with Jesus' life and ministry. You know, he lives and lived for a different kingdom, one that polarizes, that, that brought discomfort, that flips the value systems of the world around him on its head. So the very nature of who Jesus was as a holy God, living in the world but separate from it, in the world but for another kingdom, it kind of creates this tension, this friction, this opposition, particularly for those that are in places of power. And so Jesus is, in a lot of ways, he's this square peg in a round hole, and, and everywhere he went, he causes friction. And this sets up what's coming. This sets up what he's about to kind of talk about. But here's the deal. When two worlds collide, when two worlds collide, it demands an elimination of one. Now, William Barclay, he writes this, we can either do what we like or we can do what Christ likes. And if we wish to go on doing as we like, we must seek to eliminate Christ. I'm going to read that again. Just meditate on this. We can either do what we like or we can do what Christ likes. And if we wish to go on doing as we like, we must seek to eliminate Christ. So we go on in verse 10. But after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast. They're saying, where is he? And there was so much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now, let's address the elephant in the room before we even move on. Because without a proper framework of context here, we might, we might kind of look at this at face value and think to ourselves, well, Jesus lied, right? He said he wouldn't go. You know, he said to his brothers, I'm not going to go. And now he's, he's gone and went. And so, you know, you might say, well, see, Jesus lied. Therefore, he sinned. Therein, he's not the Holy One of God. But keep in mind the context here. His brothers invited him to come in the context of his public ministry, this involved his ministry of the miraculous. It involved his entourage of disciples. You know the saying, a crowd draws a crowd. You know, and so here we see the Jewish leaders. They're looking for Jesus. They're not looking for him as an individual. He's, they're looking for him as, quote unquote, a movement with his entourage, with his disciples, with his followers, drawing the crowd. And yet they don't find him because Jesus has now gone up privately. He's gone up alone. Now, something to note, when the scripture refers to the Jews here, it's important to kind of differentiate what, what is being said here. When, when the scripture speaks of the Jews, it's not talking about the Jewish people as a whole. Uh, it's talking in this context about the Jewish religious leaders. And so this is the, uh, the Jewish elite, the leaders, those that have influence, those that uh, have power. And so it's just an important distinction as we continue through the story to understand that that's what is being referenced. Now, it says they were looking for him. They were looking for him and his entourage. This kind of feels uh, in this moment like a, an episode of Undercover Boss. I don't know if you've seen that show. If you haven't seen that show, you have to watch it because it's, 
The, the idea is a CEO will, will kind of go and get into some kind of a disguise and they'll do like an entry level job within their organization or company. And it's kind of just a fun sort of, you know, they're the CEO, but now they're undercover working with um, entry level uh, jobs and interacting with people within their company, but they don't know that they're the CEO. And so sometimes um, they come across these beautiful people that have taken ownership and are putting in like just lots of time and effort. And, and so they get at the end of the show, they get rewarded. And then other times they come across employees that are just awful and toxic and, and not for the mission of the company. And, and so sometimes you'll see like someone get called and they'll reveal who they are and, and then they'll be, they'll get fired. Um, I don't know. I'm a bit of a twisted person. So for me, like, it's just such a satisfying show, but, but notice the polarization here and keep in mind, both views, they kind of miss the reality of who Jesus is. The crowd is talking about Jesus and some of them, them are saying he's a good man. And then others are saying he's a deceiver of the people. There's kind of like no in between on this. And What's interesting about he's a deceiver of the people is the latter one there is, is punishable by death if it can be proved out in the courts of the day and the time. And so this is like, uh, this is a kind of a big deal. This is a big, broad spectrum in terms of where the crowd sits. But they're all kind of nervous to even talk out loud about him because they know the Jewish rulers uh, are out kind of to get him. They know that this is a taboo subject. But there's this misconception of Jesus' identity. And it's one that we have to wrestle with today. You know, based on Jesus' teaching and, and how he revealed himself to the world, we really only have kind of three options left to us in, in who, determining who Jesus was according to Scripture. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes, famously writes in, in his book, Mere Christianity, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. C.S. Lewis. Now, this is popularly kind of known as the trilemma. In other words, for those who have explored life and teaching claims of Jesus, you, you don't have the option of just saying Jesus is a good man or a good teacher. Because of what he said, what he claimed about himself, what he claimed about his kingdom, what he claimed about his father, uh, all of those pieces, you, you can't just say he was a good man because the claims that he made were too grand. 
And so he was either a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord. John continues in verse 14, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now this gives us an interesting insight into the life of Jesus. He didn't study in terms of the formal rabbinic schools of the day. Now, what's interesting about this is some, some of us might want to take this out of context. And I've heard this before. And, you know, there's those that would say, and they use this verse, and, and they would use it to the kind of badmouth formal education, particularly in the church, particularly like theological education, doctrinal education. Uh, and and they, they would use this because Jesus didn't go to the, the schools, then neither should you, in fact, I've had people tell me that the only book that they read is the Bible. Well, th there's a problem with that because if that's the only book you read and you're reading it on your own and you're not inviting other voices into that process, you're filtering and you're interpreting scripture through your bias from your perspectives and your understanding. And that becomes very one-dimensional. In fact, that becomes very dangerous. Um, I don't know if you know this, and you can talk to me if you want to talk more about this. I'd be happy to talk to you and, and maybe point you to some resources. Uh, but currently, right now, there's a really popular, I'm not going to say translation, I'm not even going to say paraphrase. I'm going to say it's a, it's a, it's this side of paraphrase, uh, much more commentary but it's called the Passion Translation. But here's the problem. There's a man named Brian Simmons who's uh, bringing the Passion Translation to the, to the world, uh, but he is alone the only one interpreting it. He is, he is and, 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 and the problem is there's so many things going wrong with it in terms of additions and subtractions and changing the nuance of what is being said based on his own bias and his own upbringing and, and even the... Uh, the, the uh, kind of denominational bent that he has, this just becomes a problem. It, one person, it, it becomes so one-dimensional and it gets off track so quickly. And if you don't have other thinkers challenging your views and giving you perspective, your understanding of faith, God, and purpose, it becomes so one-dimensional. So, so allow me to lend some perspective to the sentiment that, that this verse uh, provides a reason not to uh, engage in any kind of formal education. Um, Jesus was God incarnate. In other words, Jesus was truth personified. Um, <clears throat> so here's what I would say. Unless you're truth personified, unless you're truth personified, um, maybe you should do some study and maybe you should invite other teachers and leaders and people, whether it's through books or through lectures or through being part of a family of God and in community, you need to invite other people into your understanding of faith and scripture because you're not truth incarnate. And so we can't take what Jesus did and translate it and go, that's what we're going to do in terms of this moment, simply because of who Jesus was. Now I'm a little off track, but I'm going to get back on here. Verse 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. 
The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. You know, Jesus is talking about a a level of humility, positional humility, and he's propping up God the Father as a source of what he understands to be truth in this world. And he's kind of deferring honor and glory to his Father. And this becomes a bit of a, a litmus test for truth because Jesus isn't getting anything out of it, right? He's not positioning himself. He's not propping himself up in this moment. He's, he's extending glory and honor to his father. But throughout his ministry, Jesus has been challenged on his authority to say such things. You know, who are you to say that? And it becomes difficult to establish a, a bit of a litmus test for truth when the, the one speaking truth is of supreme authority. You know, there's no other source to go to to verify the claim. And I thought it was interesting. I was reading Bruce Milne as I was studying and preparing for this. And he says this, his identity, Jesus' identity with the Father gives him access to the Father's knowledge. But Jesus also offers a means of testing the validity of his teaching and the claim implicit in it, obedience. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out. There is no uh, way of testing a claim to divine revelation other than this one. Nor is the situation different in principle for any claim to ultimate authority. Since by definition there can be no higher authority, there is no external criterion by which such claims can be tested. They must be self-authenticating. Only by submitting to God with complete willingness to do his will are we in a position to evaluate Jesus' claims. In in other words, the only way to test the claims of Jesus is to submit to the teachings of Christ. And, And if they are true, they will lead us in life and freedom. And if they're false, they won't. They are self evident, but only to those who submit to his way. And this becomes a problem because like we mentioned before, you you can't do uh, what you like. Um, You can do what you like or you can do what Christ likes, but in order to do what you like, you have to eliminate Christ, right? This becomes a point of tension in the human being. Again, in in classic kind of Jesus fashion, he cuts through um, all of the pretense. And so let's move on. Verse 19. He finishes this moment and he says this, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. He's speaking to the religious rulers here. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? In other words, you're crazy, Jesus. Like, no one's seeking to kill you. But they didn't understand that Jesus knew what was going on behind the scenes uh, in terms of the Jewish elite, the Jewish rulers of the day. And so he kind of cuts through the pretense here. He gets to the heart of the issue. And and in one moment, he reveals his knowledge of this conspiracy to kill him and the motivation for that conspiracy. Of course, he's he's referencing here one of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not murder. He's talking about, you know, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? He's referencing this, this commandment, thou shall not murder. And so he's calling a spade a spade here. Now, of course, the crowd, they're not aware of this conspiracy among the religious 
elite. And so, um, but the religious elite, they're aware now that Jesus is aware. There's this kind of point of tension, this moment. It's very public. And he goes on to expose their hypocrisy. He goes on. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry, angry with me on the Sabbath? I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now notice that what Jesus does here. He's contrasts their intention to murder him uh, their take on what he's done in terms of the Sabbath. So he's contrasting um, murder, thou shalt not murder, <laughs> with their perception that he broke the Sabbath law, right? Thou shalt keep the Sabbath holy. And so there's this contrasting of these two commandments, but he's kind of pulling out their hypocrisy in this moment. He sort of, so he talks about circumcision. Now, Notice that he makes the distinction that circumcision is not from Moses, um, but from the fathers, right? So what he is doing here is he's saying the law of circumcision actually predates the law of the Sabbath. So the ability to circumcise on the eighth day, even if it falls on the Sabbath, is fine because circumcision predated the Sabbath law. Circumcision was given to the father, so Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant back then. When Moses came along with the law brought from God, circumcision predated it. And so it took precedent in that moment. Now, for those of you that are new to this, circumcision was a mark of being a Jew and mandated by God as an, an outward sign of that um, uh, that position and, and who they were as a people. So, so we ask the question, though, here. What's the difference if you take a piece, but I make the whole body well on the Sabbath? You know, what, what came before circumcision? You know, the, what came before the law? What, what came even before sin? Well, there was perfected creation. The Garden of Eden. He created all things and said, it is good. It is very good. The purpose of the law was to reveal our deep need for a divine intervention and a reminder that paradise was lost. So wholeness, health, and vitality all predated the law. So as Jesus heals on the Sabbath, as he, even in the synagogue, as he's teaching and he pauses to heal deformities, uh, cast out demons, all the things that he did on the Sabbath that got all these religious rulers up in arms because he was breaking the Sabbath law, he's speaking now and saying, hey guys, hold on, you circumcise on the Sabbath because circumcision sets a precedent and predates the law of Moses. What about, what about paradise lost? What about what was original intention of all of creation? Why is it wrong that I on the Sabbath bring a wholeness to a whole body in this moment? And so he's saying, you know, judge, but judge with right judgment. Uh, be consistent in your logic. Bruce Milne, again, he writes, his action was in fullest accord with the healing and redeeming purposes which lie at the heart of the Old Covenant. Now, of course, the Old Covenant circumcision was a, a big part of the marking of the Old Covenant. Thus far from being the enemy of Judaism and the law, Jesus is, in fact, the one in whom the historic purpose of Judaism is affirmed by being fulfilled. 
Now keep in mind, Christianity is not a new religion. Jesus Christ did not come to start something new. He came to bring a conclusion to what had already begun. Christianity, in in many ways, is, is the extension of the Jewish story, but it's been brought to all mankind. And so this is not new. And so in this, he's bringing a a fullness of what the law was meant to reveal to all of humanity. The law revealed our need. It showed us our inability to be holy and righteous, our need for a righteous and holy Savior. It sought to redeem and restore what was before sin entered the world. And Jesus came to make the way in which we can be restored to original intention. In fact, uh, some of us, we think of heaven in terms of this ethereal place that we're going to go and just be and floating around. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is God, through Jesus, establishing a new heaven and a new earth where he will set up his kingdom for all eternity and restore this original intention of what was very good. And we get to be a part of that. The conclusion here. There's so much here that, you know, uh, seems somewhat unrelated and perhaps it's nice to know, but the question kind of remains, you know, in this moment, what does this mean? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? Well, the only litmus test we have in discovering the truth of Jesus' claims is to submit our lives to those claims. Um, The cost of that journey, though, of following Jesus, of following the one who lived in such a contrary and different way in his day and in his time is the path that he's calling us to as well. In many ways, he's really calling us to live as square pegs in a round hole. We, we shouldn't look like the world around us. But as we live out his way and his truths in him, with him in us, um, we prove out We authenticate the claims that he made about himself because the more we live it out, the more we understand and become confident in the salvation we walk in, in the eternity that we're walking towards, in the kingdom that is yet to come but is already in part already here established by Christ. And so as we walk this journey out, yes, it's contrary to the world around us. It causes us to contrast But as we walk it out, we also authenticate the legitimacy of who Jesus said he was and who he is. Paul writes in uh, uh, Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Jesus, later in John 15, we're going to come to this in the following weeks, but he speaks directly to the cost of following him. In John 15, 19, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, much like he said to his brothers. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This narrow way, this life lived for the kingdom and the king is one that takes us on a different path. You know, I often think about our global workers. Uh, So many of them 
have such a sort of entrepreneurial, creative um, gifting and gift set. And they have to, doing what they're doing, where they're doing it, uh, flexible, changing, moving with culture, figuring things out. They just have this knack, um, this entrepreneurial kind of knack. And I, and I think about that because those that are innovative, those that are risk takers, those that can start new works and start new things, they could take those skills and translate it to the world. They could start a business, they could make money, they could scale a business. They could take those skills and do something completely different and make money and get the house and the picket fence and, and the retirement portfolio and all of the things. Yet, what are they doing? They are sacrificing often, many of them in relative obscurity, serving the kingdom of God because they have a different value system. Now, the world would see them in their obscurity as a failure. But God one day will greet them in heaven saying, well done, good and faithful servants. They're living as square pegs in a round, in a round hole. I, I want to ask you the question today. What are you pursuing in this life? We've all been called to this mission together. We've all been gifted in unique ways to serve the mission of the kingdom of God. But do we just simply look like the world? Are we simply pursuing the things of the world, the securities of the world, the, the accolades of the world? Or are we looking different? The challenge here, like Christ, is to look different, even if it costs you everything. May the words of William Barclay haunt us. May they convict us. May they kind of just roll around in our head and in our hearts as we meditate on them. We can either do what we like or we can do what Christ likes. But if we wish to go on doing as we like, we must seek to eliminate Christ. Lord, we thank you for your example. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. Jesus, King, Savior, Lord, and yet, Lord, you humbled yourself. You came to this world to show us a better way and then to establish that way, to make that way possible. And so, Lord, I pray as the Father reveals the Son to us, as we have a revelation of the living Christ, that, God, you would give us the grace to see with clarity what you're calling us to, but also the grace and the boldness and the strength and courage to step out in paying the cost of living differently in this world than the world expects of us. Lord, would you cause us to have a grace and a strength even when we create friction around us just based on our beliefs and what we're pursuing and the priorities that we have that you would give us a grace to, to walk in truth, but with deep, deep love for the world around us. And God, this idea can, can seem so um, passive at times, where we, we do at times, we seek to eliminate you in areas of our lives because we don't want to change. Lord, forgive us. And lead us, Lord God, to be those that submit our lives to you in a way that brings change. 
not just to us, not just to our families, but to the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, why don't you stick around with us for just a moment as we uh, just give you a few announcements. And thank you so much for joining us. I pray that the Holy Spirit would just speak to your heart. And as we meditate on this, that there would be there would be deep change that would benefit not just you, your families, but would benefit the church and benefit the world around you. God bless. Well, I don't know about you, but I had so much fun at our like last preaching party where we like joined in the Olympics that were happening at the time uh, and did some of our own. Well, preteens, if you missed out on that, don't worry. We have another one coming up at the end of this month. It's going to be August 25th. Uh, here at the church at 6.30 p.m. Here's the thing though, you do have to register just so that we know how many people are coming. And so if you go to myevangel.church forward slash register, maybe elbow your parents right now, tell them to get on that website, you can register and we would love to see all of your preteens there for our next party. One thing that coming back together in faith community has shown us is how much we need each other. And the running of Evangel Church day to day is no different than the relational need we have of each other. Faith community works best when everyone uses their gifts and talents to serve one another and to glorify God. And so we wanna invite you into a season of discerning where you fit in Evangel Church. We have a form at myevangel.church forward slash get involved, all one word, myevangel.church forward slash get involved that we would love for you to fill out and we can start walking through a season with you of finding your fit here at Evangel Church. It takes all of us. Faith community works best when we all, each of us, use our gifts and talents to serve one another and glorify God. Thank you so much for staying with us this morning. Well, here at Evangel Church, we believe that generosity makes room in our hearts for others. And one of the ways that we are generous here at Evangel Church is by coming alongside and partnering with the financial needs of the church. Now, those don't all stay here. We have different organizations we as a church partner with, as well as being able to be a blessing to the community around us. So if you wanna partner with what Evangel Church is doing here in Pell River and around the world, we invite you to explore giving at myevangel.church forward slash give, myevangel.church forward slash give.